We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the tweets. Thanks for the emails. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thanks for buying the audiobook. I really appreciate that. So on to my guest for today, Tino Go. CEO of Baru, a company that enables customization of furniture while reducing inefficiencies in the manufacturing process. The idea for Baru was formed when Tino was trying to find a bookcase back in 2014. Not finding what he wanted, he researched customization, which he discovered is a quote-unquote medieval process. (laughs) Tino, who has a background in operations logistics, and corporate finance sought out a more efficient route to customizing furniture. The result is a digital platform that enables customers, whether they're individuals or businesses, to put in an order directly to a local manufacturer. This process is a win for manufacturers since, as Tino explains, furniture manufacturer machines generally sit idle for much of the day. By enabling this type of customization, Shipping and packaging costs are reduced, as well as easing the complexity of putting together a customized order. Baru currently offers furniture customization in 22 regions in the United States. Customers must live within an hour of the manufacturer in order to make the shipping cost effective. So Baru is working on expanding where they are. Tino also plans to eventually offer customizable kitchen cabinets, recognizing there's a high demand for that right now. Now, let's get better together. Tino Go, welcome to the podcast. It is a great pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you for that uh, 
great honor of having you on. Uh, we met through uh, Josh, which was really cool. Uh, I met him through Sean Gold, who was the 100th episode because Sean fought really hard to be 100 and it just so happened he was in the right t- spot at the right time. So I always love meeting people through Sean and then, you know, obviously through, through Josh and what you're doing over at Baru is just like really near and dear to my heart because I am, you know, in my core, a manufacturing guy. I like to build stuff. I was an electrical engineer for a long time doing semiconductor physics and building computer chips. So manufacturing's in my DNA. <laughs> I love building stuff. And um, I just think what you're doing over at Peru is just really cool. And we're going to talk all about that and why you do that and all that sort of stuff. But before we get to that, like I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Yeah, quite simply, um, uh, like you, like you, uh, I think uh, I like to do what I perceive to be the right thing. And you know, throughout my life, um, even if even if the right thing stroked folks the wrong way, I I found it com- you know I find I find it compelling to uh, to be doing the right thing, whether that's economically the right thing in terms of like uh, activity allocation and waste minimization or financially the right thing for a company for or for a group of um, for an organization. And um, and I see this opportunity to change business, uh, uh, certain manufacturing businesses to become much more efficient and much less harmful to the world as they do their business. And, and essentially we've taken from first principles, how do we deliver to Jari exactly the products he wants? Because, you know, for example, in our first category, which is furniture and soon in a few weeks, kitchens, um, if you want, if you want what you want, it's hard to find that in among inventory because a lot of times you find the the style you're looking for but it doesn't exist in the configuration you need it color the materials the size and so we fix that and we fix that by allowing the buyer whether it's an individual buyer a retail customer or a um, commercial buyer to directly control the manufacturing process. So we've created this digital link through technology um, that allows a buyer to control the manufacturing robotics. They're called CNC machines and um, they often exist in the the woodworking shops in uh, every major metro area in the US. We created that link for buyers to change those instructions that drive the machinery. So they can change it directly through our website configurator where they choose a product and then uh, indicate the size, the dimensions of that product that they want to buy and the material and color. we have a patent pending on the use of augmented and virtual reality to control those machines 
So uh, essentially that eliminates all of the communication steps and all of the engineering steps that are normally incurred when when you when when someone wants something custom made. And that drives huge efficiencies if you know um by being able to change the manufacturing instructions directly and then having it made using someone's so a manufacturer's idle cnc machine in the customer's hometown that's uh, a huge efficiency gain for sure for sure and as well as just seems like a super smart thing to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, everyone says shop local or, you know, support your local businesses. And I think this is like for manufacturing, that's usually has been a tough thing because, you know, economies of scale, you know, even like semiconductors, like my old business, like there's no more semiconductor fabs, hardly any in the U S anymore. They're all overseas. And so all of this, like chip, like chip demand, there's shortages of all these chips for various reasons during COVID, but also, like, we can't manufacture that here anymore. And it's just nice to see, like, a thoughtful process and kind of infrastructure to be like, well, hey, you know, got some idle machines running around or just around the world, the cities or the country or whatever. And, you know, hey, why not utilize them with what would seem to be a very obvious thing to me? But <laughs> then again, you know, I'm like one of these people that's like, I can't believe anything. All this other stuff's not, you know, automated, but it, it, what, what in your background sort of led you down to this idea? Because this is a lot of moving parts to have to come together. This is not like some guy building a bro app on iOS. I mean, this is like, you can't hack this in a hackathon over a weekend. This is, this is legit. This is like legitly hard. So t- tell me about like what in your background, like led you down this path. Yeah, it was uh, ultimately it was um, in 2014. I looked for a bookcase and I couldn't find one. And when I discovered to get one made was a medieval process. That's what that's what started me on this journey of uh, how is it that in the 21st century that we have to put up with these medieval processes that don't even serve the manufacturer as well. There's so much waste in in the communication and the translation of what a customer wants um, into the manufacturing process that it's it's expensive it takes forever and it's just not doable and so um so that was the that was the genesis of the idea um my background is operations logistics between the us and europe and also uh, 21 years of corporate finance so I see, th- I, I look at activity in balance sheet and income statement terms. That's my frame of looking at activity. And I knew that the, I knew that the robotics existed because I've managed a number of uh, manufacturers that use these robotics in other for the manufacturing of other products like landing gear, for example, which was a couple of the plants I managed. Um, And so I knew that they were code-driven. And if they're code-driven, 
we should be able to instruct remotely what those machines should do. Um, and so that's, that's the basic idea. You know, how do we get in what, how do we transfer what's in someone's imagination and transform it into code that drives a machine? And the technology now exists that we can do that. And, and so the, the reason why you started off with like furniture was because of the bookcase problem or is there just more capacity for, you know, wood CNC machines or is it just easier? I'm, I'm just, I, I, the reason I bring this up is I had to move and I was looking for a couch and, you know, a table and all these sort of things. And it was just such a pain to find like what I really wanted. I mean, a couch, I, I ordered a couch, but it's like the semi-custom couch. It's going to be here in November. I ordered it in September. <laughs> it's just like ridiculous to a first order. I'm just like, ah, oh, man. Um, so, you know, when Josh turned me onto your side, I'm like, wow, I need a, you know, I need a, um, a dresser for my room. Ah, oh, maybe I should, you know, like check it out, right? But I'm curious: is it, it was was furniture just a natural way because of capacity issue? I mean, I'm always fascinated by why people use like the certain beachhead market. Like, oh, we're going to start here, and so I'm curious: what what was the thought process? Was it just like, hey, I needed a bookcase and it didn't exist, so I'm just going to build it? <laughs> Uh, the reason why we're starting with furniture is because the machines are plentiful. They're highly underused. The typical utilization rate is two hours a day. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, because um, the machines, uh, for they cost less than a half of a person's wages on a five-year capital lease. And they get one person's work done in about two hours. Wow. So there's just all this excess capacity because they're so efficient. Correct. Interesting. And then the other reason why we're choosing furniture is because the materials have been standardized. Hmm. And um, so that standardization is, um, is part of our quality control mechanism. So we, we instruct the machines what to do. They're accurate within a tenth of a millimeter. And then we order the materials and the, those two elements, you know, those two aspects of our process um, really ensures for the, the, the quality control mechanism. And then, um, and then another reason why we're choosing heavy, bulky, expensive to ship and damage prone furniture <laughs> let's just pick the hard problem <laughs> if you're like we're making custom cars then i'd be like okay that's next level but not <laughs> clearly okay interesting so so it's it's like a would you classify it as a two-sided marketplace you have okay you so you have buyers of furniture like consumer and then you have this network of I'm assuming like furniture sh sh shops or woodworking shops with CNC machines that you sort of, do they have to like have some sort of criteria? Do they have to meet some sort of standard? Because I got to believe that the, 
there's probably some variability in like how they run things or is it pretty much, well, we have one of these machines, it's all programmed the same, it just goes. I, I don't know much about that. They have to write, have the right uh, machines and, and also the right software. Um, but after that, uh, there's so little discretion that we leave to the local manufacturer, to the local, um, to the workers that it, it's really, um, you know, it, it's really easy to, once they have the machine, which is a very expensive machine, they already land in a, uh, in a higher caliber type of operation. Right. Right, and right, the right. and the and then the software was you know um, was very expensive also. Yeah, because the only kind of CNC machine I'm familiar with is from metal. I mean, I, I honestly didn't know they used it for wood, which, but I don't see why they wouldn't because it's just cutting material. But I mean, I've seen the 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 metal CNC machines a lot, um, and I'm curious. I, it's so interesting. So are people receptive to this, like on the manufacturing side? Like when you go pitch this, I mean, how do they respond? I, I, I This is fast. This is so fascinating. Yeah. So 80% of the folks that have machines, they say, yeah, I'm curious. Uh, tell me more. And then um, about 20% of the folks that uh, I sp speak with um, are they on board. So they become a manufacturing partner. The, you know, initially there's a lot of suspicion because it's um, it's a very competitive industry and um, it's you know over the long term it's very it's not very profitable. So they're um, you know it's a very conservative and a very risk averse group of manufacturers. Um, no one's ever tried to do them any favors. Mm -hmm. Um, but Baru, what Baru is, is a sales lead generator. And we're a market maker for that idle machine time. So, you know, we, we get a sale and then we get it fulfilled using someone else's idle machine time. And because we've eliminated um, the cost structure that normally wastes half of the furniture industry's revenues we can allocate you know those those savings we're not necessarily charging a low um, a low pr lower price for those savings we're charging the same price or maybe a little bit higher than than the competition but we're using the savings for higher quality materials mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're tripling our material content relative to mass produced mm -hmm. We can afford local labor and local manufacturing services, and we're still, you know, earning higher margins than the industry as a whole, right. because we don't have inventory management and the long distance shipping costs and packaging and all this unnecessary. Packaging. I mean, yeah, this is like the perfect just in time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like the more I, I mean, just it's fascinating. It, and you know, people that there may be not a lot of people that listen to the show that are like so fascinated with manufacturing as I am or you are, but this is a fundamental thing. And the reason it's fundamental is because 
making stuff is important, like making sure that you have quality and that you can, you know, be efficient in the process. And it was interesting because when I was at 500 startups, there was a company and that made custom like trinkets and shotchkis for like, you know, trade shows or whatever. And I don't remember the name of it. I'm going to mess it up. I think it was 47 layers. I, I don't remember the name, but what they were doing was they were a marketplace for excess capacity of 3D printers. Mm-hmm. So similar thing. It's like, oh, or laser engraving or whatever. So if you said, hey, I wanted a tchotchke of a keychain or whatever, they would take the order and then they would have partners like you have and they would fulfill it. And it would mm-hmm. be 3D printers and CNC machines, I think, not, not at the scale you have, you know, laser engraving and stuff. Um, I don't, don't know if they're still around, but the, the idea was to democratize the manufacturing process and to make it on demand so that you only built what you needed and inventory went away. Cause inventory is a big deal. Like shipping things all over the world is expensive. And then you got to make sure you get the right thing. This is the problem that fast fashion has. I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with fast fashion where there's a lot of waste, like you know, Zara, the, the, the one of the big fast, fast fashion brands, they were trying to figure out how to do it an on-demand kind of build to demand. Like they, they had the same kind of concept with sewing machines and stuff as, as you're doing with CNC machines. Um, and it takes a little more coordination and you don't get like, you know, the, the satisfaction sometimes of like immediately buying something but it's the most efficient way to do it. Like build what you need, ship it to who you're going to ship it to or build on build to demand and not worry about it. Um, because the, there, there's a lot of waste in the supply chain, as you know, and what people have done with software and SaaS for efficiencies in healthcare and other business processes um, really, it seems like was what you're doing for manufacturing. I mean, there is no limit to what this could be applied to which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> just, I'm still blown away because I, I was looking to get a, uh, like I said, I was looking to get a dresser for my room and I'm like looking through it and I'm all, well, one, like uh, if anyone has ever tried to buy any furniture, sometimes you go to a website, there's thousands upon thousands. I'm like, ah, oh, I can't even handle this. But I really liked kind of your approach was like, okay, there's some options. There's a few of them. There's not a ton but there's enough to have a variety with all sorts of different finishes. Um, and it's just a really like, you know, click buy in two weeks it's delivered as opposed to who knows <laughs> to be delivered with some of these things. So, and, and you said, so I'm sorry, you said you're starting in furniture. What, what's the, what was the next market you were going after? Uh, we're, we're uh, doing uh, kitchen cabinets, modular kitchen cabinets. Kitchen cabinets, okay. And so um, uh, let's go back to furniture. And, uh, this on-demand manufacturing is the, on- is the only way to do mass customization, what they call mass customization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so every model that we have, you can order in 100,000 variants. Hmm. And, you know, in terms in size, width, height, depth, and yeah. materials. And I think that is 
you know, that's kind of like the, um, the flavor du jour uh, in this, in many ways, because people just want what they want, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, you mentioned going to a website and seeing thousands of available products, but when you drill down and you select the ones that you want, if you have any kind of space constraints or uh, any uh, non-standard desires, and we're all unique individuals, yeah, often it just doesn't work. And that's what we're also fixing with our system. And so uh, our next product category is kitchen cabinets, because we're addressing the fact that it's hard to buy kitchen cabinets now because of the global supply chain issues. Yep. And so we're offering a line that will be priced in line with IKEA between $6,000 and $13,000 for the cabinets. But we're tripling the quality of the materials and offering the customization that you cannot get with standardized mass-produced goods. You know, the size dimensions and things like that. And then um, it's delivered quickly because it's made locally. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just super fascinating. Gosh, got so many, so many questions on this because I don't know why other is actually, yeah. Is there another like segment of manufacturing that does something similar? Because I can't think of one and, and I'm racking my brain. I know 3D printing has been a big boon for like custom parts and on-demand stuff. Like a lot of times if you're a, um, you know, you, you have like a machine and you can't get parts for it anymore. People make custom parts on 3D printing and stuff. But I mean, is there is there any other like industry other than what you're doing that's similar? Because I got to believe that over time, because this stuff, it just seems like everything's getting on. So everything's getting automated. Everything's computer controlled. Robots are going to take over. You know, labor is going to be more specialized and it's going to be more skilled and it's going to be, you know, like running the machines. So are there other like industries that are sort of taking this on that may be the next place you guys play? Or is there just, we're just going to focus on the wood. (laughs) If it's made from wood, we've got it, you know? Yeah. So um, uh, the precursors to what we're doing were uh, t-shirt printing and um, and pictures on coffee mugs. Oh yeah. Right. Right. T-shirts. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, uh, Vista, Vista print came along and, you know, took your designs and had it printed at in their network of underused machines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- w- when you mentioned 3d printing, that that's a, that's a perfect, uh, I mean, what we're doing is very similar to that whole industry. Uh, the reason we didn't choose that is because uh, there's really, it's hard to, I don't think there's enough demand or supply mm. of, mm-hmm. of high quality. Yeah, I would agree. That was the problem that, 47 layers was having, but that was like long time ago. That was like seven years ago, but it seemed that that was the biggest constraint, the fulfillment side. 
But the idea is the, the principles are exactly the same. You know, we create a digital file that people can manipulate in augmented reality or virtual reality and, um, and it gets output at a local machine. Yeah, I guess the other industry would be on-demand books. Because now, like, people don't do a lot of, like, big run books unless they're, like, bestsellers. They're literally, like, print-on-demand books, which was a huge... The reason why self-publishing, other than, you know, ebooks, self-publishing is hap can happen because of these massive machines that just sit around waiting for the next book to print, like, individually, you know. Similar, similar kind of thing where uploaded and then it gets wherever it needs to go. It's, it's just, a, I mean, I'm, is there intellectual property issues with this? I mean, you know, like transmitting the data files to other machines, or is that kind of taken care of with agreements from partners? Because that just seems like there could be an issue with IP. Well, the... Um... There's not, you know, we just, we design our own products and uh, eventually we will accept other, other uh, designers products, but, and they will earn a royalty on those proprietary or those unique designs. Um, but the IP is, um, you know, we're not copying any, we're not really I don't see any IP infringement issues. That said, uh, we do have a patent pending on the on the system and the method and system of custom manufacturing. And um, there are two major elements in in that uh, patent pending claim. So we're using uh, augmented and virtual reality as a user interface, mm -hmm. so that human machine interface. And then on, on the back end, uh, we have a network of underused robotics. And so the, um, not that that's super important, but, um, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to build a business and have someone, you know, come up and scoop us on the yeah. idea. Yeah. 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 There's plenty of other challenges in the world and <laughs> getting scooped out of it. There's a lot of moving parts that have to have to do this. Um, so how many, how many like regional manufacturing partners do you have in the US? How many, like how many? Yeah, we're we've had sales and uh production in over 20 regions. And it and it grows um weekly because we get inquiries. Uh, and uh, there are so many regions because we don't ship beyond one hour. So oh, okay. that's, that's part of, that's part of the operating model actually, because um, if you ship beyond an hour, the, the freight rates jump a class and you have to get into packaging and you, it, it, it's, it becomes unaffordable and really impractical. Um, so right now we're in 22 regions. We're within 50 miles of about a hundred million people. And yeah, so we've, we've shown that our operations, they replicate. We know how they scale. We, are, we have a good grasp of uh, our unit economics as they evolve, but we're still very much a startup. 
you know, the, eventually we'll have thousands of models, each one available in 100,000 variants. And the way, you know, the way we promote those is by uh, presenting to the Pinterest user the product that they will most likely be interested in. And each one of those products is, you know, each one of those models is, a, is customizable, highly customizable. And then uh, we'll also introduce a, a configurator probably behind the firewall for professional buyers. Oh, yeah. Those who are well, uh, well prepared for the complexity of infinite variety. Right. You know, interior designers or architects or, um, you know, we've had conversations with a company that is rebranding um, a global retailer mm. for their for their stores. Mm -hmm. And um, they're interested in what we're building because they get their clients approval in virtual reality. Oh, but but to get from virtual reality into the individual store with a unique footprint and a unique layout is is a very tedious process and it's often centrally manufactured and and incurs a lot of shipping costs and logistics hassles right, right. so we would eliminate that for them so we're talking like someone needed custom display cabinetry for like a retail store correct yeah oh yeah, I didn't think of it that way. I mean, you know, I'm thinking just the consumer side, but there's also the commercial side. There's lots of build outs of custom things. I mean, any little mom and pop coffee shop eventually is going to need custom stuff, or if not, like something custom. I have a friend that's a carpenter and he like builds out bars and stuff. And like, yeah, all his stuff's custom because it's like every building's different. It's not. You just can't go to Ikea <laughs> and like, do it, you know. And even if you tried, you know, I, I, I a couple of years ago, um, right after uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, I went to Los Angeles uh, and I walked into a coffee shop for a meeting and the I told the coffee shop owner uh, what we were doing and she said, oh my God, this is so awesome. I, I wish I had known about you because she, apparently she had just ordered a, an ADA compliant coffee station hmm. because she had a narrow corridor in which she had to put this ADA compliant storage item mm -hmm. and she couldn't find one. Now that, you know, now that the typical suspect mm. retailers. Yeah. Yeah. There's always, I mean, cause every little, Nook and cranny's different, <laughs> you know. Every little, it would be nice to have stuff off, just you know, consumer off the shelf. But very rarely see that work out any well, unless it's like an outdoor, you know, coffee table or outdoor like cafe mm -hmm. table, right? Which mm -hmm. always always seem to be you know tilting to one side, <laughs> you know, That's not funny. very nice. But well, then they are like they're. It's I don't know why no one's fake fixed. How come no one can fix a table that actually sits right in a restaurant? It's all seems just the stand, standard junk. So yeah, it's super fascinating. Um, so what are some of the questions that you would ask or have entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs ask themselves if they were looking to get into the entrepreneur game? What, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would, 
I would um, encourage them to ask uh, themselves whether they really love what they're about to embark on. The, you know, the asking the five whys, mm -hmm. you know, how come they're doing something? And if they are convinced that they're going to be able to survive all the, uh, the difficulties of creating something from nothing, um, then they should also back, keep back testing the data that they receive against a business model and a financial model. Because if, if, if it's not a profitable business, even in as a financial projection, then it's really not a viable business. Yeah, you'll um, never make zero up on volume. <laughs> That's like you always yeah. say, remember back in 2000, 99, 2000, oh, we'll make it up on volume. Yeah, not a problem. We don't need to make money. And you're like, uh, well, zero times zero, zero times a million is still zero. But everyone wanted to build the internet back then. So, you know, we got to pass. You, you just needed 14 slides in your PowerPoint deck and here's a million bucks go <laughs> and it had internet in it and you're done. <laughs> <laughs> Those times have changed. Those times have changed. <laughs> yes, they have. Those times have changed. Those yes, they have. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, we're we're raising our seed round, our seed round, and it's it hasn't been easy because ultimately, you know, the first three checks were super easy mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, but the since then, um, it has not been easy at all because ultimately, it seems like a as the perception that is that it's a very complex thing that we're building, very manufacturing-like. You know, they don't see it like uh, sending a Word document to print to Staples to a printer, yeah. Which is which is our process, um, and you know, ultimately, it's you know, it seems like a Airbnb before Airbnb or uh, yeah. Uber before Uber. <laughs> yeah, if you look at those slide decks and the the uh, investor memos and those they're like, this is never going to work. This is the dumbest idea ever. You know, I think Uber's deck said something like, yeah, we'll be lucky to do a hundred million bucks, you know, <laughs> on this. And they were just going after black car. Like yeah. they weren't, mm -hmm. they weren't going to, you know, make everyone an amateur cab driver. Um, what does anyone know? <laughs> but I do think from a, I think the other question is what are the fundamentals of the business? Like the fundamental dynamics of it, like the unit economics, but just what are the first principles? Because it is you've hit on the first principles of manufacturing. Excess capacity is valuable. And if you can fill it, you can get it at a discount. You can arbitrage it, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at the process and eliminate the steps that are costly, like shipping and lead times, that's where the margin comes from. I mean, it's just completely re-upending it. That, that's why I think it's so, uh, and, you know, a lot of investors and VCs in the Valley, they mostly focus on software companies because software companies are easy. They're easy to understand. <laughs> There's no, you know, it's just some dude writing code. Hardware scares them mostly. Like I do not know a lot of hardware VCs anymore. Like, Back in the in the eighties and nineties and even two thousands, it was semiconductors and chips and stuff, and people spent a lot of money on that. But nowadays, 
I'd be hard pressed to tell you a VC that focused on hardware. I, I can't yeah. off the top of my head think of one. But then again, you're not hardware. That that's the thing. It's like you're dealing with this hardware component. I mean, it's a physical thing, which is you know like real stuff. <laughs> you're enabling the shipment of real stuff. You know. Yeah, but uh, you know our operations are hundred percent digital. Yeah. You know, we we when we get a sale, we produce the machine code, which you know we spend five hours engineering it, and we get a hundred thousand variants without any additional work. Yeah. And then we issue purchase orders, and we schedule delivery. That's all we do. That's how come this business has the potential of scaling enormously because we don't actually deal with the actual. Um, all of the things that give physical goods the constraints, whether yeah. it's machine capacity or labor capacity or or loading dock capacity, because there's this network of uh, undertapped. You know, there are about four thousand of these machines out out in the U.S. Oh. and and you know, at the current two hours of you know, if if we're if we're adding one hour per day of machine time at each of these shops that will generate a um, million dollars of sales over a year. So 200 hours of machine time creates a million dollars of sales. It's no brain that scale. <laughs> yes, that, no you know, that, that scale. So, you know, three hours of machine time, $3 million per shop times 300 shops covering the top 100 Metro areas. That's a billion dollars. And that's 50 units a week per 1 million people. Yeah, not much. It's not, it's, yeah, like, definitely the unit economics work. Definitely the first principles work. Because it's like, I mean, yeah, you're, this is the classic manufacturing problem, right? How do you, um, you know, demand a supply in terms of, or capacity, like how do you level capacity? I mean, ideally you want your machine to run 24, seven, seven days a week. Like at this constant hum never happens that way, but that's, I mean, we tried to do this in the semiconductor manufacturing. Like you actually had to run products all the time or the thing would get out of cow. It's a nightmare. You can't start and stop a fab. Like that's mm -hmm. just uncalled for because there's some things in the fab that just, have to move it's kind of like you know motion is lotion for this whole thing <laughs> like you know without it without it working it's meant to just run so that's feeling, that's another know. that's a another uh, ha uh you know beautiful coincidence about the woodworking space because these machines aren't they're they're idle most of the time yeah. And that's their that that's their normal state. And and we've engineered the our products so that there is as little setup time or zero setup time. And so our you know our economies of scale arrive operationally. Operationally, we attain our economies of scale with one unit. Because hmm. hmm. I know like uh my my ex-wife's father was a machinist, like mm -hmm. a metal machinist. Uh, he would make these parts on these chuck auto chuckers, which if you know anything about manufacturing, it's like these things that, you know, roll stock and, and 
the most expensive part of his whole business was setting up the the auto chucker. He's like, I can make a hundred or a thousand and the setup is going to be killing me (laughs) because they weren't automatic. They weren't computerized. He had, he had the original ones where you had to dial the, like, you know, Mm -hmm. there were these German ones. I don't remember the name of them, but the setup was the most expensive. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you, that's why batch and mass production exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we're using machines that require no setup and, um, and we're engineering products around those machines. So a little bit different methodology. Interesting. Wow. Well, you know, Tino, this has just been such a cool conversation. I'm so glad Josh uh, introduced us because this is so fascinating. I'm like, I'm honestly, I have your website up. I'm looking at like what I want to buy. I, I really think this is cool. And I looked at like my, I'm in San Francisco Bay Area. So I looked at my thing like, oh, there's there's a local manufacturer that would, you know, would do that. And I think that's so neat that you've kind of, I never thought of like the packaging. I don't know why I didn't because I bought something from another like furniture store. It came in this massive box. I had to assemble it. And there's a lot of packaging. Like I think, I mean, I'm not joking. I think half the weight of the box was this was packaging because they were protecting this piece of wood thing. Maybe not half, but it, it was a lot. It was no joke. I remember trying to cut it all up and I'm like, ah, oh, there's a lot of wasted stuff. So really cool what you're doing. Good, good luck in the fundraise. I know it's a tough thing, but got a good idea. So uh, keep it up, stay safe. And uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll be out in the Bay Area in two and a half weeks. So awesome. We can grab coffee. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Tino, for an awesome interview. And you know, I love manufacturing things. So uh, building stuff is really cool. And I really love what you're doing. I think this is clearly the next wave of manufacturing. So As promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Tino. Ask yourself if you really love doing what you're building a business around, or more importantly, you know, like fall in love with the problem. So yes, really important to understand your inner feelings on this. Like you just can't go off and say, I'm going to make a bunch of money and you know, it's never going to work that way. So really ask the question, Am I in love with what I'm building the business around? Use the five whys, a questioning technique developed by a leader at Toyota to dig deeper and help prevent problems. I mean, this is a classic five why kind of analysis for um, manufacturing and debugging. And as you go down the five why uh, questions, keep on asking yourself why, why, why. Eventually, you'll get to the root cause of what's going on. And it's a very powerful technique because it really gets down past the superficial. So ask yourself why at least five times. If you're convinced you can survive the challenges, continue to test the data as you go to see if your idea is truly viable. Because ultimately, it's about whether or not you can actually make a profit at this. Yeah, I mean, unit economics is really important. So you always have to ask ask yourself the question, what are my unit economics? What's my cost of customer acquisition. Now, clearly in the beginning, you may not know all that, but you should have a good idea on how to at least get an estimate. Um, lots and lots of companies will always say, well, we'll make it up on volume, right? Well, zero times a million is still zero. <laughs> so uh, 
Making it up on volume is not a strategy. You really do have to think about what are my unit economics? Is this viable, et cetera? And these are some really important questions to ask. And of course, since Tino is a manufacturing guy, he's going to ask those questions as well as a finance guy. So there you have it. The actionable insights I learned from my interview with Tino. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.